Welcome. Thank you for joining the conversation today. I'm your host, Randy Gue, Assistant Director of Collection Development and Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movement Collections at Emory University's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library. And you're listening to the podcast series, Atlanta Intersections. To kick off season two of Atlanta Intersections, we've invited award-winning author and journalist, Gary M. Pomerantz to join us on the 25th anniversary of the publication of his landmark history of Atlanta, where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn, a saga of race and family. But before we jump into the history of the Dobbs, Allens, and Atlanta, let me tell you a little bit about what is in store for season two of Atlanta Intersections. We'll have new episodes each month through June 2022. And this season, as we explore how lives and places are found together in this city we call home, we will delve into punk rock, graffiti, hip hop, and other Atlanta-centric topics. But first, we have today's guest, Gary M. Pomerantz. Gary joined the Washington Post as a sports reporter in 1982. He moved to Atlanta in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in 1988, and Gary is the author of nonfiction books on topics ranging from history to sports to civil rights. His most recent book, The Last Pass, a New York Times bestseller, centers on Boston Celtics legends Bob Cousy and Bill Russell. Gary currently teaches reporting and writing at Stanford University's graduate program in journalism. Gary, good evening. Good evening to you, Randy. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you back in Atlanta at Emory and in the library. Uh, well, as you know, my connections to Emory run pretty deep. So what are those connections? Well, first, this book we're going to discuss, Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn, was written in this very library, in the stacks, 28, 27, 26 years ago. Um, my son is an Emory alum, uh, and I was a professor here for two and a half years and loved every minute of it. I heard you had some great graduate teaching assistants. I did, I did, plus you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, it was a great experience all the way around. Well, um, there's one other connection you have with Emory, you and Peachtree have with Emory that you didn't mention, and that is that the Gary M. Pomerantz papers are at the Rose Library. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit with our conversation, but this work, Where Petrie Meets Sweet Auburn, took me five years. It's kind of a hybrid of history and journalism, and, and a lot of the research I did was here at the collections at this uh, Woodruff Library, and um, you know, I had to decide where to deposit more than 500 interviews, tapes, and transcripts, and I decided to put them here at, at the Woodruff, and uh, I put them here because I knew they would be well taken care of. Well, and I thought since your papers are here that we could kind of use the book and the papers to kind of structure this conversation. Um, Great. So, you know, we can um, talk about what you did to create this work and you can give us kind of a behind the scenes look, uh, if you will. Uh, well, I was a significantly younger man then. I was, uh, <laughs> I was started this when I was in my 30s. And I had two young kids at home, um, another one on the way soon after the book was published. 
And uh, I, I had been a journalist, a daily journalist at the Washington Post and then the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And from the moment I set foot in Atlanta in 1988, I felt this profound resonance of race. There were these, you know, this iconography across town. You know, you would see uh, the, the statue at the, the State House of the agrarian rebel Tom Watson and then over at the federal courthouse, Richard B. Russell, and then a very different one on Auburn Avenue, Dr. King's Crypt, beautiful epitaph, free at last, and it resonated with me. And just out of interest, I had been a history major at Berkeley, um, I started looking for you know, books about Atlanta, and I saw pieces of the city and its past scattered here and there, but nothing that represented the city that I was experiencing daily, which is to say, Two cities in one, black Atlanta and white Atlanta, a city integrated by day, but mostly segregated in matters of the heart, namely where you lived, where you prayed, and where you were buried. And now I'm talking about now in the 1990s. Uh, so uh, I set sail on this project. When you realized, hey, this might be a book, was, it, was there a specific moment when you were like, yeah, this is interesting, and then it kind of moved into the, the, the I can do it yeah, I mean, um, it was a long stumble in the dark, you know, trying to find this. I kept saying, Gary, where is it? Where is Atlanta's story? And I came to believe that in the South, you are who your family is. And so I started looking for the defining families in Atlanta's history, that had, the families that had multiple generations of civic achievers, leaders. And, um, you know, it seems so obvious now, the Dobbs and the Allens. It was not obvious. It wasn't hardly obvious. I mean, there were times where I felt like I needed a search party carrying lanterns to help me find my way through this. And, uh, and then came the process, once I decided on the Dobbs and Allens, um, of, of seeking out their approval. Um, but in essence, I came to believe that Maynard Jackson and Ivan Allen Jr., as mayors of Atlanta, and their families from the black aristocracy and the white aristocracy uh, represented the soaring idealism of Peachtree and Sweet Auburn for generations, the yellow brick roads for dreamers in the South. That's really interesting because um, for decades, urban historians have struggled with how do you tell the story of something so complex, so multifaceted as a city and starting with Sam Bass Warner in the 80s, he said, families, residents, the lives of residents. How did, you, how did you kind of stumble upon this as a way to tell this much larger story? You know, as I say, families became, for me, the, the, the touchstone. This was the way to tell the story. I did not want to create something that was encyclopedic. That wasn't my quest. I wanted to tell Atlanta's story vividly and intimately. And so you have moments like the Civil War. Well, I wanted to show by personalizing it, making it more intimate, how, how and where you know, these families were and how they handled uh, the Civil War. So too, as you know, you're moving through with, with the Gone with the Wind premiere and, and the funeral of Martin Luther King Jr. in April of 1968, placing family members there while you know, giving their, their intimate stories. And you see the movement of Atlanta generationally through these families. And that's why I say at the beginning here, I was looking for families that had multiple generations of leaders, and both of these families had that. 
And so you mentioned earlier you have two loves in this type of work, journalism and history. And that's kind of reflected in the collection, in your papers. Um, the Where Petrie Meets Sweet Auburn files are interviews and research files. So I have a procedural question for you. Which, which did you do first? Would you go and do archival research and then interview people? Or would you interview people and use that to kind of chase the trail for the archival research? You know, I, I think I did both. They, they were interlocking pieces. Um, as I say, I conducted more than 500 interviews for this book. I mean, I was obsessive with this. I, I wanted to slay the dragon, you know, and this was um, a 130-year period I was taking on over five, six, seven generations in these families. So um, this is where the archives, different repositories helped, um, but the oral histories were so important. You know, people will at times diminish the impact, the import of oral history. Not me. I mean, you know, so much of a public figure's life is spent offstage. You know, in many respects, that's who the public figure really is, right? Uh, and uh, so interviews were an essential piece of this puzzle. I think when the book was done, I had interviewed Mayor Ivan Allen, who was then in his 80s, 16 times, and Mayor Maynard Jackson, who was serving his third term and was much busier, six times. Um, and uh, each time I would go back to them, I was a little better informed. I had different areas that I would target in you know, moments in their career, uh, things we hadn't talked about, things we needed to talk about. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you went to the families to ask for permission. How was that process? What, what, was, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't so much permission that I sought. It was cooperation. And um, because I was going to do this book, um, with or without them, it would become a much better book, a much deeper, richer uh, portrait of the city and of these families with their cooperation. I remember going to see Mayor Ivan Allen in his office in 1991, and I told him the book that I aspired to write. And he seemed surprised, and he said, we're not very interesting. And I said, well, Mayor Allen, with all due respect, I'll be the judge of that, right? And I had met Maynard Jackson even earlier by happenstance in 1989 when he was running for his third term as mayor. And I was in a midtown hotel and I felt a tap on the back of my shoulder and I half turned and I was eye to eye with a very big man who made precise eye contact and shook hands with force and said, I'm Maynard Jackson and I'm running for mayor. And I thought, yes, you are. <laughs> and, and it was harder. Frankly, it was, it, it was much harder to get Maynard to come and sit for interviews because he was so busy. Um, and there came a defining moment as a sort of a backstory to the book. I had gotten two early interviews with him, and two years passed, and I got, had not gotten the third interview, and I desperately needed that and more. So um, I went to his mayoral assistant, Angelo Fuster. I said, Angelo, I'm really sorry for what I'm about to do. I've got a document in my hand, it's a photocopy and I'd like to share it with him. I showed it to him, and he said, what is this? I said, that is a page from the 1851 estate of the farmer Josiah Dobbs, Cobb County, Georgia, and it lists his 13 slaves, the most valuable, a Negro man, Wesley. This was Maynard Jackson's great-great-grandfather, Wesley Dobbs, owned by Josiah Dobbs. 
And Angelo looked at this and he said, have you shown this to Maynard? I said, I would, but I can't get to him. And I, I please know, I don't mean to cheapen this document. I mean, I'm in awe of this document for all that it, 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 you know, it, it represents and all that it is. He said, let me talk to Maynard. And I think it was within a week or 10 days that I had the next interview with Maynard Jackson. And you know, it's hard, Randy, to get people who are still alive to understand that they can also be historical figures. And now, both have passed, Maynard Jackson and Ivan Allen belong to history. But um, for those couple of years, three, four years, actually, um, they belong to me, you know, and I needed the, their time. And with Ivan Allen, I got it. But the thing about Maynard is Maynard compressed a lot. He gave you a lot in short space. And uh, I was deeply appreciative of the, the cooperation from both. So what's it like to find that nugget, like the will um, of Josiah, right? Because you're in the archive, you're in there forever. And what's it like to finally come across something that you're... So there was a wonderful archivist at the Georgia State Archives who saw me there day after day. I'm never going to find this, never going to find this. He said, Gary, this ain't happening. This is worse than the needle in the haystack. You're not going to find it. And he said, I hate to tell you that, but I just think you need to know. Um, and then I found it. And then I found it, um, that sheet of paper. And it happened one other time that I can tell you. And it's a document you and I have discussed recently. Um, it's a document about, uh, it's the death certificate of Maynard Jackson's great-grandmother. We have it. Right there here. it is. <laughs> there it is. And this is the actual document in, the, in your archives here because it has the embossed stamp on it from the state of Georgia. So um, according to Dobbs family history, oral history, and it's important here to make the point that so much of, of black history is beyond our reach in terms of documentation because no documentation exists or little documentation exists of slave life. But according to the Dobbs family oral tradition, John Wesley Dobbs, who was Maynard's grandfather, a character we'll no doubt talk about, very central figure in the book, um, his mother was born a slave. And she was born the product of a liaison between the master and one of his slaves. And, and all I knew was that this master was a doctor, a physician in Woodstock, Georgia. Um, and they had a Scottish last name. Well, okay, so you start to go into the archives and you see that there's about 300 people living in, in, in Woodstock. 300, not 3,000, not 300,000, 300 people. So you got 300 people there and there are very few doctors. And I went into the, I had the idea that if I could find the death certificate of John Wesley Dobbs mother, maybe it would have a name that would help. So here it is. I went and paid my, I think it was $10. And, and I wasn't a family member, but back then, I don't think you needed to be because um, they handed it over to me and I'm like going down the lines, Scottish name, Scottish name, mother, mother's death, mother's mother. So this woman who was the born a slave, uh, her mother's name is listed here as Martha McAfee. And I thought, McAfee, McAfee. 
Sounds pretty Scottish to me. So, okay, so this is almost embarrassing, but I literally, this is, this is how swept up into this you get. I burst out the door and I ran. I ran down the street from the Vital Records Department to the Georgia Archives. I tie, I wore a tie then, flapping in the wind as I'm running. Bust into that door, open it up, head into the microfilm room. Uh, Cherokee County, 1850 is what I looked for. Um, and there it was, in the dim light of, of the microfilm reader, History Came Alive, Dr. John Miller McAfee. Uh, he had slaves, and you know, a lot for, for uh, that part of Georgia. And um, everything started to connect. Then I started to study the McAfee's. He'd actually been a Georgia state legislator at the time, and Atlanta became Atlanta. Um, and he was Maynard Jackson's forebear. Uh, so it was, it was a riveting, wow moment. Truly, it was. And this is why, you know, history speaks to me. And I know it speaks to you. I revere history. And, and you know, so much of who we are and what we are comes from the past. That great line by Tennyson, I am a part of all that I have met. Well, by that, I, I think Tennyson means not all of only our own experiences, but our parents' experiences and their parents and their parents and so forth. And, and um, here it was, come to life. So that's an example of kind of a nugget of information you found in the archive. What's it like to meet people, if you will, in the archive? Because this um, is also in your papers. And this is the first time I've seen this was the first time I'd seen a handwritten note from John Wesley Dobbs to Maynard Jackson. And I got to tell you, seeing the handwriting and his correspondence with him just gave me a different sense of who he was. Can you let us know a little bit about who John Wesley Dobbs was? And then um, I think this is kind of his style uh, personified. Um, in the correspondence. Well, John Wesley Dobbs was really the, the most electrifying figure in this book. Um, he was, by title, the Grand Master of the Prince Hall Masons of Georgia, the Black Masons of Georgia. And he was a man of high style. He was self-taught mostly, um, born in uh, Cobb County, spent a few years in childhood in Savannah, and then came, came to Atlanta. And he was a railway mail clerk. He was on the railroad, on the trains, um, and handling the mail. It was a prestigious position in part because he carried a gun. And, you know, not many um, Southern blacks were allowed to carry guns in this period. Dobbs was um, a race man in the classic sense. He was about racial uplift. And much of what we would see later, in later generations, from his grandson, Maynard Jackson, comes from Dobbs, uh, including that fire. Dobbs had more, um, well, I'll call it fire. Maynard's was, was more you know, intellectualized. Dobbs was more fire. He was about the ballot, the books, and the bucks, he said. And he'd go up and down Auburn Avenue in the Prince Hall Negro Mason's um, uh, building is down on Auburn Avenue. And he would be... Um, Orating. He would have his Dobbs brand hat, he'd hand it to somebody nearby, and he would 
start talking about the need for black Atlantans to register. The Atlanta Negro Voters League he was a part of. Um, and he would quote Francis Bacon, Shakespeare, um, Du Bois, sometimes all in the same paragraph. You know, he, he lit it up. And he had this phrase about his speeches that he tried to, you know, hold true to each time. Start low, move slow. Strike fire, move higher. And then sit down in a storm. So you get that, that fever pitch from, from your listeners. And you see this, of course, in, in the black church. And right when you got him at the, at the fever pitch, you're done. And you sit down and the room is vibrating. Um, and Maynard had some of that. Maynard had some of that. Um, this, this particular letter you, you have here, which comes from uh, the Dobbs collection in New Orleans, is a letter from John Wesley Dobb to his grandson, my dear Maynard. And as you can see here, there's great flourish in, in the way he writes, um, in, the, in, the, in the, the brush strokes of, it, of the letters, the cursive writing. Uh, he had six daughters, and you know, as they say in the South, the, the Dobbs name went, went to girls. So the Dobbs name faded out in that line. And those six daughters all are Spelman graduates. Um, they become teachers. One is a coloratura soprano who uh, desegregates some of Europe's most prestigious opera houses, Matawilda Dobbs. And in this letter, you can, you can feel Dobbs pressuring young Maynard, who's in his college years, that you don't need to come home for the holidays. You need to get a job. And in some of Maynard's letters, you can see um, he's a little deep respect for Grandpa Dobbs, but he's fearful of the man. You know, everybody in, in the family was a little bit fearful of him, but it, he was the patriarch. There's a great family photo that's in these papers of John Wesley Dobbs, taken in the 1950s, surrounded by his daughters, their husbands, all these grandkids. So the grand was a grandfather. And, and you can just see there's an upper tilt to his head. He's so proud. This is his monument, this family. And, uh, and this is just one of the families in the book. Yeah. What was it like to meet John Wesley Dobbs, people in the Allen family? I mean, you can tell by the excitement in your voice telling about that. Well, but... see, this is what happens. <laughs> this is what happens when you do this. You get swept up. And I surely got swept up. The Allens were much less um, electrifying but history made them electrifying. When Mayor Allen said to me, you know, we're really not very interesting, um, he became very interesting as mayor in 1960. Now, I believe the defining moment in modern Atlanta's history is that 1961 mayor's race between Ivan Allen and Lester Maddox. This is the moment of truth for Atlanta. What kind of a city are we going to be? I assure you, if Lester Maddox had been elected mayor in 1961, Atlanta would not have hosted the 1996 Summer Olympics. It might have hosted an Olympics at some point after that, but its progress would have been delayed if Maddox had served as mayor. Um, and Maddox won the white vote in Atlanta. It was the black vote that John Wesley Dobbs, who just died the year before, um, had helped to, to generate, to, to register, that saved not only Ivan Allen, but it saved Atlanta. 
So Gary, you know, you were just speaking about Ivan Allen and the experience of interviewing him. Um, what was the most memorable moment that you had with him? To look at Ivan Allen and Maynard Jackson, just side by side, aesthetically, take them on as they were. They look so different. They came from different places, different parts of town, one from the black aristocracy, one from the white aristocracy, one a Morehouse man, one a Georgia Tech man. And yet they shared certain qualities. And I realized that when I interviewed them, mostly they were charmers. And I could just, I, I remember thinking, this is how they got elected. <laughs> you know, there was something charming about both of them. As I say, Ivan Allen was retired. He was in his 80s at that time. This book took a long time to finish. I started in 1991. It was published in 1996. And during that five-year period, history didn't stop. It kept being created. Life played out. And in the, you know, a very dramatic moment, um, during the time I was writing this book, the mayor's son, Ivan Allen III, took his life, his own life, uh, with a gun. And um, it was a startling moment in the city and in the family. And I remember seeing Mayor Allen at the funeral. I attended the funeral. And he looked broken. He looked shattered. I remember he went over when the ceremony ended and put his hand on the side of the casket. And it looked like he was just going to collapse. And Mrs. Allen, Louise Allen, his wife, uh, took him by the elbow and gently pulled him away. And he had asked me in our next meeting, Gary, how are you going to handle Ivan's situation? Which is how he always referred to it to me, Ivan's situation. I said, Mayor Allen, I've given this considerable thought. Um, I'm going to write about it. I have no choice but to write about it. This is a book about the city, your family. And Ivan III was an important part of both. He was a former Chamber of Commerce president. He raised money to start up the, the Carter Center. He raised money for Atlanta's Olympic bid. He was an important player in, in the whole scheme of Atlanta. Well, the most memorable moment I had with Mayor Allen came after I gave him a copy of my book. I, gave, I got two copies early. I gave one to Maynard Jackson and one to Ivan Allen, and then I waited. Five years is a long time for me to wait to get this done, but also to wait to see what the verdict will be. And I'll preface this by saying, you know, as a nonfiction writer, the people I'm writing about, I don't seek their friendship. I seek their respect. I want them to respect my ambition um, and, and the final product. If they like me, okay, great. So now um, I have given the book to Mayor Allen, and what I later found out, and he told me this, was that he instantly had his secretary photocopy chapter 29, which was the chapter on the death of his son, Ivan III. And he passed it out to the family, because this is what they were most interested in and probably worried about. So now I'm sitting across the desk from the mayor. It's been about four or five days since he's had the book, maybe a week. And he said, well, he said, some of the, my family members were a little um, 
I don't remember if you said surprised or disappointed that you devoted so much attention to Ivan's situation. And I waited, I waited, I waited. He said, but I have read the book and I think it's magnificent. Um, okay, okay. Um, I would have been happy with pretty good. <laughs> More happy with magnificent. <laughs> well, okay then. Um, I think what goes unsaid there is he's saying, I think you treated my family respectfully, fairly. And that's all I can ask for. Because when I'm at work, I, I do feel like I'm holding the staff, the standard for the craft of history or journalism, either one. And I don't ever want someone I've interviewed to say I'll never be interviewed by a writer again because of Gary Pomerantz. I think about this. I do. I mean, I teach, as you know, I teach journalism at Stanford. And um, I care about it deeply. I care about the telling of history. And, and I try to be scrupulous in the way I go about things. And I give a lot of thought to how would you feel if you were Maynard Jackson or you were Ivan? Um, I think it's important to do that. That's really fascinating because you can see um, that care and that craft in the transcript of the interviews. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's going to be really fascinating for people about this collection is that you conducted these interviews, you have these transcripts, you used parts of them for the book, but there's this whole other chapter just there for other people to discover um, and to use in their projects. Um, like I have to say, here's a transcript of an interview you did with Maynard Jackson and it looks like you were um, just in a car riding around Auburn Avenue with uh, Maynard and you, you're asking him about the importance of Auburn Avenue to him and he just stops and he picks up a car phone. This is in 1992, which is a rarity. Um, and he says, he picks up the phone, calls someone and says, I want Scott to check the housing on Auburn Avenue, one half block east of Hilliard. You've got several row houses boarded up. I want this stuff taken care of. This is a year old request and we've had King Day again with this eyesore still standing here. Find out exactly what the story is and let's move on it. I want to report exactly one week from today on the status of this housing. This would be the housing next to 346 Auburn Avenue. So I know a lot about Maynard Jackson, but this part of your transcript, which wasn't in the book, kind of told me a completely different story about, yeah, about, about Maynard. About Maynard at that time, yeah. when he was uh, still mayor, as I say, in his third term. And um, yeah, there's, there's so much... There's so much to be learned from being with someone, but there's also so much to be learned from these documents. Um, boy, I mean, at Emory's archive, the papers of, of Robert Woodruff um, were of enormous help. Hartsfield, you know, enormous help. Um, big names, smaller names, to read correspondence, to catch them at, as they were at a moment in time is important because as time passes and you interview them, memories are imperfect. Memories are often shaped around our feelings more than the facts. And so you, you need to, as, as the historian, to do your best to, uh, 
suss it out, you know, to sort of figure out um, what's what and what was uh, at that given moment. You know, I mentioned the most dramatic moment I had with Ivan Allen Jr. The most dramatic moment with Maynard Jackson came after I, um, Angelo Fuster, his, his um, staff member uh, at City Hall, had shown him the document from 1851. I took him out to a century-old graveyard in Kennesaw where uh, the, the slaves who had watched General Sherman and his long line of bluecoats march into Marietta en route to Atlanta. That's where they're buried. And to call it a cemetery, I mean, it is that, but it's really dense woods. And I had been out there and discovered uh, the slave forebears of Maynard Jackson. They were buried there. So I took him out there on a Saturday morning. Maynard Jackson, being Maynard Jackson, was in a suit, tied, knotted tight at the throat, a pen clipped, gold pen clipped in a pocket. And he was a big man, as I say. He was 6'2", 3-something, 3'30", 3'40". And I would pull back these vines and let the big man through. And, and as we walked, you can hear the rustling of the leaves you know, beneath our feet and twigs snapping. And every 10 or 15 steps, we go deeper into this enshrouded woods. We go back another quarter century in time until we are standing amidst the tombstones of those slaves who watched Sherman march in. Maynard was a very dramatic, theatrical guy. But he's also deeply rooted in family. And I'll never forget his reaction when he saw the tombstone of his slave forebear, Wesley Dobbs, who was listed on the inventory of Josiah Dobbs' estate of slaves. He sort of gasped and held his hand over his mouth. And he just stood there and read from a distance of, I don't know, 12 or 15 feet from the stone. Wesley Dobbs died February 5, 1897, age 78 years. And he moved towards the stone and reached out to touch it. But he pulled his hand back, almost as if it were a flame, something too precious to touch. But then he reached out again with one hand and the second hand, and he all but merged with it. And I'm pulling myself back, trying to give him a very personal, profound moment. And here's what I'm seeing. The South's first black mayor standing in the shade of dogwood trees and scrub pines that had grown literally from the graves of his slave ancestors. And I felt the earth move. You know, in the, de- in the days of Wesley Dobbs, it took four hours on horseback to get from Marietta to Atlanta. Of course, with traffic today, it still takes four hours to get from Marietta to Atlanta. But, but that's when history comes alive. You know, um, and you see the progression, the, the dramatic trajectory of the Dobbs generations. Wow. So you mentioned earlier that the 61 mayoral election with Ivan Allen Jr. and Lester Maddox was kind of this transformative moment. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, both in terms of its um, point in Atlanta history, but then also... Um, kind of its effect on Ivan Allen Jr. and, and the role in his role as, as mayor? I mean, I see Ivan Allen as the bridge from the Old South 
to the new in Atlanta. And when he gets to the distant shore, there's Maynard Jackson to take this city into the modern day. You must realize Ivan Allen Jr. was raised in elite quarters of Atlanta, and he was raised to believe in segregation. But beginning in 1959, 1960, when Ivan Allen Jr. became uh, president of the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, he began to know black Atlantans um, beyond those he had known in the past, butlers, chauffeurs, yardmen, maids. Now he began to meet the likes of Daddy King, the Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., Daddy King as he was known, and the Reverend William Holmes Borders, um, uh, Benjamin Mays, the president of Morehouse. He began to meet black Atlantans who were his intellectual equal and more. And he began to change. He began to transform on a deeper human level. There are some people who say, no, it, you know, it's, that's not possible. That's political expedience. And political expedience plays a role in this. But to deny Ivan Allen changing, transforming on a deeper human level, a more compassionate level, is, I think, to deny the human capacity for change. In 1963, Allen becomes the only elected official in the South to testify for John Kennedy, President Kennedy's, public accommodations bill, restaurants and hotels. And that's the precursor of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Right after the Civil Rights Act passed, Lester Maddox, as, as the owner of the Pickrick restaurant in Midtown Atlanta, chases off three black Atlantans who came in specifically to test to see if you know, the Civil Rights Act was really in effect. Maddox chases them off, slams an axe handle across the, their car as they leave. It's a good thing for Atlanta that Ivan Allen Jr. was mayor at the time of the April 1968 King funeral and not Lester Maddox, because Lester Maddox was governor of Georgia. And he is holed up in, in the, the state capitol, surrounded by 160 Georgia state troopers. And early in the morning, he went out to raise the flag from a respectful half staff to the top of the pole, only to see TV cameras there. And so he just left it where it was and walked back inside. Robert Woodruff, we haven't talked about him, but Robert Woodruff was an important man in Atlanta, maybe the most important man in Atlanta as the Coca-Cola baron. You know, you can look across Atlanta today at art centers and libraries and parks, and, and you think these are all gifts from Robert Woodruff and his foundation, and if you take away all of these gifts, it would have a Swiss cheese effect in Atlanta. You'd have holes all over the place. The night of King's assassination, there was rioting that began to break out across American cities, though Atlanta remained mostly calm. And Robert Woodruff had been visiting President Lyndon Johnson that day in the White House with Carl Sanders of Georgia. President Johnson was handed a slip of paper by his aide to say, you know, the news is that Martin Luther King has been shot, not killed, but shot. Later he died. And uh, Woodruff calls Ivan Allen that night and he said, Ivan, whatever needs to be done, it will be taken care of. Just do it right. 
well, the Allen administration expected 10,000 people to show up and 150,000 show up for this funeral. The most remarkable funeral cortege in the land. Famous people were there. Um, poor people were there. Uh, it was mostly black people who were there. Um, it was a defining hour in Atlanta's history, and Ivan Allen Jr. was there. Ivan Allen Jr. had befriended Daddy King. He had befriended M.L. King. And um, he helped this keep the peace in the city. And Woodruff, by the way, what he was saying there was, if you need more security, more police, Coca-Cola will take care of it, or I will take care of it. And uh, Atlanta remained peaceful. Hot day. You had Marlon Brando and Sidney Poitier and Wilt Chamberlain and uh, a lot of fame, Richard Nixon and Bobby Kennedy and George Romney, famous people in and out. Stokely Carmichael was there. Uh, it was just an overload, a sensory overload. Um, and, and it was a moment when the world really was watching Atlanta and, and it remained peaceful. And, and this is where Allen builds the bridge where he takes Atlanta from the old South days. Now we're entering the modern era. And it's a good thing he was mayor and not Lester Maddox. So Gary, um, it's a pleasure to have you here in town, but uh, what, what, are you here, what are you here in town for? 25th anniversary of where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn. I cannot believe 25 years have passed. No one why my back hurts. Um, I'm here um, because we're having a, um, a, a celebration of it tomorrow, the 25th anniversary, in addition to the official reveal by the city of Atlanta and central Atlanta progress of the winning design for an art piece that's been commissioned by the city to honor the two mayors and their families. Uh, that, and this art piece will go at the very corner where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn. And, um, you know, I think it's... Um, proper that we honor these two mayors at that place. Maynard Jackson and Ivan Allen Jr. Um, represent a higher ideal. One Atlanta. They represent the possibility of harmony. As mayors, they did not achieve harmony in this town, but they aspire to it. And in death, they embody the soaring idealism of Peachtree and Sweet Auburn. I mean, you know, that this was triggered by my book is cool. I mean, it's awesome. I'm, I'm excited about it, and I look forward to, to seeing the winning design. Gary, thank you very much for Always being Always a pleasure us. to spend time Good with you. Good to see you. All right. Atlanta Intersections is produced by Randy Gu and Nick Twelmlo. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor and the legendary Band With No Name featuring Jimmy Deemer and James Joyce created and performed our theme music. We're grateful for the support of our colleagues in the Rose Library, especially Lolita Rowe, Community Outreach Archivist, and Jennifer Gunther King, Director of the Rose Library. Special thanks to the Tots Till Death crew, Henry Aaron, General Ulysses S. Grant, the amazing Bud Powell, Joe Strummer, and Crass for inspiration. Please join us next month for a new episode of Atlanta Intersections. For more information about the Rose Library and our other podcast series, please visit us on the web at rose.library.emory.edu and follow the Rose Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
You can find the Rose Libraries podcast on all your favorite podcast feeds.